0: I probably shouldn't admit this, but we spent years kind of bouncing from uh, provider to provider to figure out who would give us the most credits. We didn't have to pay for compute at all for years, but it, it does eventually run out. <laughs> so our, our dream, right, our first dream was we want to shift sentiment analysis to people in a way that is radically accessible. We want to offer these ML models in, in a way that's you know, as easy to consume as any regular function. call. That was what our MVP was. Right? It was this set of ML models, very different than what we do today. And, and honestly, I think that we probably not ambitious enough with that initial MVP. My name is Slater Victoroff, I'm the founder and CTO of Indico.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laporte, and today how Slater Viktorov created a tool to allow enterprises to embrace intelligent process automation. All this and more on Code Story. Slater Viktorov has had some pretty cool hobbies over his life. Though he claims to be a weird guy, he has a well-rounded set of activities. He's a vegan baker, which is half-mad science, requiring the breakdown of recipes to the fundamentals of their elements. He's also a fiction writer, halfway through his second book, which he started during the pandemic. He had a short MMA career, too, believe it or not, and has studied Yoshikai karate for quite some time. Post high school, he was burnt out on academics, so he jumped headfirst into martial arts, spent some time in Japan studying the craft, and did some MMA fights in LA. He has learned over the years that most tech people are typically afraid of being punched in the face. He and his co-founders fell in love with the technology centered around intelligent process automation, which enables organizations to automate processes involving structured, semi-structured, and unstructured document formats. Since 2014, they have been at the forefront of innovation in enterprise AI. This is the creation story of Indico.
0: So Indico at the 10,000 foot level is an intelligent process automation company. What that means for us is that we're taking some of the most complex ML on the planet, right? The kind of stuff that you hear coming out of OpenAI and Google. You know, Not only do we have Indico alums at those organizations and sort of advisors, and you know, we collaborate with them occasionally, but our goal really, rather than incrementally kind of moving forward, the architectural state of the art is really this idea of how do we take that technology and make it accessible specifically to non-technical users? And then in intelligent process automation, we do that primarily in the document domain, if you will. From an ML perspective, the thing that's cool about documents is that they are image data combined with text data. Uh, so, you know, we, we do image and text uh, use cases as well, but, but documents primarily. We're, we're a very classic dorm room startup. I, I would love to tell you that you know, I was some, some you know, brilliant, uh, you know, engineer in undergrad, and, and I platted, plotted out, you know, this 10-year plan of, you know, like, IPA is going to become a thing, and but, but it really wasn't that. Uh, honestly, me and my co-founders, and that's Alec Radford, Madison, uh, and Diana, we kind of fell into it accidentally, frankly. It, you know, we fell in love with the technology, and then we became entranced with this idea of how do we actually make this accessible to did not realize the path it was going to lead us on at the time, but very happy that it's ended
1: up this way. Tell me about that MVP. Tell me about that first product you built, how how long it took you to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life.
0: Back when we we were getting started, so this was 2013-2014, our goal was not making it accessible all the way to to non-technical users. We were just trying to make it accessible to developers. So our, our dream, right? Our first dream was we want to ship sentiment analysis to people in a way that is radically accessible, right? We want to uh, offer these ML models in, in a way that's you know as easy to consume as any regular function call. That that was what our MVP was, right? It was this set of ML models, very different than what we do today. And and honestly, I think that probably not ambitious enough with that initial MVP, but it was the set of function calls, right, with just a really slick usable API. And that's really what we focused on is, you know, it wasn't very scalable, you know, it was running on the AWS kind of free tier. Um, and ultimately we figured out that that product was not, not what the market wanted, but we were able to launch that and get some really nice user response and feedback that, you know, this was a problem that was resonating with people. You know, while, while we were still in school, right? So we had we had thousands of users, you know, we launched it as a, a PIP package on GCP. We got a thousand dollars in credit for winning some hackathon on GCP. And then we used that to launch our MVP. I probably shouldn't admit this, but we spent years kind of bouncing from uh, provider to provider to figure out who would give us the most credits. We didn't have to pay for compute at all for years, but uh, it, it does eventually run out.
1: <laughs> With any MVP, You have to make certain trade-offs and decisions about, you know, what features you're going to cut, what, you know, technical debt you're going to accept and pay off later. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with them.
0: You know, it it is really brutally difficult. And I think, I think probably here, let's talk about, you know, the Indico V2 MVP, just because the V1 MVP, we made those decisions, but we probably didn't do them the right way. So the V2 was kind of this, uh, you know, it was a labeling app, it was a discovery app, uh, and it was explainability, right? So it was kind of those three modules come together built for a non-technical user. And and, and I'll say that the MVP never really stops because there's the MVP of the product, but also every time we've got a new feature that we want to build out, you know, our our vision is always going to be bigger than what we can actually execute. And, And it turns out that, you know, The number one thing that I really focus on now is how can we get the the data model and the architecture figured out as early ahead of time as possible, and then set ourselves up so that we can iterate quickly on the product side after after we've done that initial launch, right? You've got this massive vision in front of you, and I think one of the really, really difficult trade-offs is you know general versus specific right is how much am i going to build towards the platform that we want to go to eventually how much am i going to just execute on the thing in front of me? and what we really have have kind of decided is that the right thing the thing that you really need to get right is the abstraction you're using right kind of the architecture and very much the developer experience for you know the the next engineer that comes here think about what it's going to be like to develop on and once if you've got those right um, the rest doesn't matter as much because you've set yourself up to, to move really really quickly after you've gotten whatever the initial thing out is because like I, I don't know anything about the MVP that you know other folks are going to build the only thing that's true about every MVP is that it's not right you know that's the only constant
1: getting the abstractions right, and that, that can be down to the domain level, level or a little bit higher. Um, getting the abstractions right so that it allows you to expand and move quicker later on is, is absolutely critical. What what about, tell me a little bit about some of those abstractions um, and without getting too detailed, obviously, but some of those that you worked through that were important.
0: One philosophy that has been uh, helpful for us, and then I'll talk about something specific after that, um, is something that we call RDD driven development. And I'll say a huge source of inspiration, though I might be uh, flashing a little bit, but for, for our kind of API design and how we think about it. So the request library in Python, I always thought was such a beautiful example of someone that took a problem that, you know, like the internet is complicated, making connections and, you know, like getting request histories, like it is fundamentally a complicated thing. And just made such a simple, usable interface And he used this approach of readme-driven development, and he's he's a real big advocate for it. And the idea is sort of exactly what it sounds like. You start by writing your readme. You say, okay, what's the interface that I want to use to control whatever it is that I'm building? Once you build that interface, the idea is actually the rest will follow from that, right? And that however you achieve that interface, that's kind of up to you and actually matters a lot less going forward. And so that's something that's been really, really helpful to us just because, again, I think people focus too much often on how to be clever in the data model, right, or clever in the architecture. You know, if you like move some piece of your problem from, you know, you know N squared to N log N, you know, that, that can be really helpful, but maybe it's not a bottleneck at all and working through your interface first and thinking, you know, will often let you identify those bottlenecks even, and help you figure out where you should be focusing your on time. One piece for us, really specifically just to give you a sense of, of kind of some of the really tough problems that we've got to deal with, documents, right? So just think about, you know, a, a page of a book, we'll say, because that's, that's maybe a little bit more accessible to folks, and how do you represent a document? Because the thing is, there's a hundred things I might want to do with a page of a book. You know, I might want to pull all of the names off of that page. I might want to classify that page as to whether it's well-written or badly written, right? I might want to extract all the paragraphs uh, that have dialogue in them, right? To just sort of name a couple of things. Each one of those problems, actually kind of the format that you'd want for, for a document, right? And... You know, the, the data format the data you can imagine is, is actually very, very complex. And the thing is, you might want to have your UI involve highlighting, which means that you have to work over characters. But fundamentally, the data that you're working with is image data. Those are really where we found some of the hardest abstraction problems are where, uh, you know, it's sort of this multimodal data view, depending on the use case you take through it, it feels like it takes really radically different paths. And, and, and I will say we've kind of messed up on that one a couple of times, and I think that we keep improving on it. But it's sort of like each improvement to the abstraction is like a major product revision for us. And in, in our seven years, we've had three shots at
1: it, you know, is the way to think of it. So you've got MVP, too, in a good stable place. You've got the abstractions where you're happy with them in, in the beginning. How did you progress the product from there? How, how did you mature it? And, and I'm curious about how you went about building your roadmap and deciding this is the next most important thing to build.
0: You know, when we were a team of four or five engineers, this was a really down in the weeds, kind of we all get together in a table and we figure out, okay, what is the next week look like for us, right, in um, not an insane amount of detail, right, but figuring out, literally going to each person, like, what are your top three priorities, what are your top three priorities? Now, that's that's not a very scalable process. That's not really effective. And, and honestly, in those early days, there was, it, it was less about a roadmap, right, just because we had so much stuff that we so obviously had to get done. That's changed quite a lot for us, right? I think when we look at our product now, the size of our vision has only grown, right? So one of the things that we joke is. You know we've got six modules in the product right now for any of one of those modules you could get a couple of execs together and you know we we'd spit out literally a decade-long roadmap for that thing right of what would be awesome and, and what we'd like uh, now obviously that's that's super important so the way things have really really changed for us over the years is now the roadmap is not about what gets built it's about it's purely a prioritization exercise right um and so we do a couple of different axes of this we've got an annual planning cycle where we say here's all the stuff that we want to get done in the year but we're going into that knowing that it's maybe 50 percent right and really just focusing on what is what is the first half of the year We also have quarterly planning cycles, which is again, you know, what did we think we were going to try to get done this quarter? How are we stacking up against our yearly goals? Uh, And again, you know, what are the difficult prioritization decisions that we've got to make for what makes it onto the roadmap? Uh, Actually, there's an analogy that one of our advisors used that I think is perfect is that the best products are like spheres. You want the minimum surface area and the maximum volume. and the sphere kind of maximizes that and i think it's it's a mistake that a lot of people make when they're designing their product roadmaps is that they think much more about like i would put all these flashy new features in right i want to let people do anything like i want to kind of send it all out. And and the problem when you've got all of that surface area, all of those different pieces that that customers interact with, it, it really slows down the pace at which you can iterate. Uh, because, you know, the second, it's very easy to ship a feature, right? But then you have to maintain that for forever. Uh, and we talk about it like like wake, like a boat wake, right? It's kind of the more surface area you've got in your app, right? It creates this massive wake, and, and a lot of companies uh, you know, that, that can kill the company, right? Because that wake sort of grows unabated and and what ends up happening is that you know you've got a whole bunch of features in your product that seemed really interesting at first and you know you've got one customer almost that uses each of them uh and then you can't get after the the features that you then really need to build without you know pissing off half your user base
1: well let's switch to team so tell me about how you built your team and, and what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you
0: I, I love our team. I mean, uh, if folks follow me on LinkedIn, they, they probably know this already, but I'm just, um, I mean, I, I post all the time. My team absolutely blows me away. Uh, you know, when I was in school, uh, I thought it was a very easy uh, heuristic, right? Uh, because I'm like, okay, uh, you know, I have all these people I've been with for years, so I'm just going to try to hire the smartest people that I know. Uh, and, you know, if I ever met someone, I was like, wow, you know, th- this person is just like so sharp. They really bring something to the table. Right. I'm I'm just going to try to hire them. So it was a, it was pretty simple. Uh, but again, you know, that's that's like a couple of hires that, that really. I mean, those were those were co-founders. Right. Um, and, and, you know, maybe maybe kind of call it up to the first 10 employees, it was purely people that I had already worked with. And there were enough of them that, uh, you know, I was able to, to get to join Indico um, that it worked out. Um, th- that's actually that's one really big plus while there's a lot of minuses of starting uh, a company in school. That's one really big plus is that if you've got a bunch of friends that are graduating, you know, are good. Um, that's that's just an awesome way. It's, it's a huge leg up uh, on, on the rest of people founding companies. Um, and then past that, you know, when we talked about really structuring the technical interviews, there are a couple things that we wanted to check for from the very beginning. Uh, number one is people who uh, will overcomplicate problems right and that's actually one of our biggest uh, sort of negatives that, that we watch out for so one of our questions um, that we used to use uh, was sort of this load balancing question and and we would set it up with kind of n- not even necessarily complicated words right but we'd use a lot of technical terms and then we'd ask them a very very simple question Right. And you could tell immediately there were people that, I mean, they would look a little weird and they'd be like, oh, uh, you know, whatever. You just do it randomly. Right. Or, you know, round robin. You know, it's like a hello world kind of answer. Um, and we're like, yes, you know, perfect. You know, when there is the the simple solution, identifying that and going for that, that's a huge, huge, huge advantage. It's something that's very hard for people to do. So that that's one key piece. Another piece, and, and this might be unique to Indico because we, we are very much a deep tech company, but um, I, I kind of. We don't have the luxury uh, that you know an e-commerce company may have, where you know that's a well-established problem and there are people that have been doing that for decades. So in our space, right? I mean, our, our space has arguably not existed for as long as we've been doing it, right? Because because we are sort of a, a we we've been very very early to this space, I'll say, um, and. We hire people explicitly with the notion that we are going to be training them to get good at this, this particular kind of uh, software, right, that we know they don't have experience with. And that's the other thing we look for is people, we don't want people, like we know that you're not an expert in this, right? No one is an expert in this. We want people that are going to be really open about that, say, hey, I'm not an expert. Are you going to be willing to train me, right? Um, and, and, you know, obviously that, that is the goal. At the same time, you know, obviously you have to bring a lot to the table. Um, But I would say that one of the best interviews I ever had, uh, because we also highly value transparency, um, again, that may be an Indico thing, but the candidate asked me, and this is the very first, you know, after a 30, 45 minute uh, phone call, right, was, do you think, you know, do you really think I could be qualified enough to join your company? Right. And like a lot of people have that that sentiment, I think, because, you know, the stuff that we do is really, really complicated. But that level of transparency, that level of humility. And again, you know, I I talked. I mean, she was a very competent engineer. Right. And incredibly motivated. And I just thought, I'm like, you know, the fact that you are asking that question tells me that the answer is yes, absolutely. You will do an incredible job here. Uh, and, and, And she has and she has done an incredible job. I don't know. Those are those are a couple of the really, really key things. You know, I I would say that a lot of my general advice for folks is just remember that the person on the other side of the table is looking for someone to hire as badly as you're looking for a job. Probably they care more.
1: Let's switch to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grew?
0: You know, it's a little of column A, a little bit of, of column B. I think that there are, like, you do have to do things when you start that are not scalable and that, you know, just be strategic and intentional about where you're doing that. You know, you do want to do things that don't scale, um, but you don't want to do them for everything all the time. Um, and what we'll also often talk about uh, when, we, when we're thinking about scale problems is, is what we call problems that we would be so lucky to have. Right, uh, So, you know, when we're going out and we're talking about, you know, scalability for uh, let's just say you've got numbers of users on your website and let's say each user, uh, you know, pays you 5,000 bucks a year and, you know, your projections say that you need, you know, whatever, 1,000 users by the end of the year. If someone comes to you and they're like, hey, you know, our, our platform, we are going to hit a wall at 10,000 users and everything is going to break. Uh, obviously, that's bad. Um, but... Uh, let's say it take, it's going to take three months to solve that. Uh, I'm like, okay, you know, in our current projections, uh, that's not going to happen for you know, three years, uh, and it only takes three months. Uh, it could still happen earlier, and it will still be painful, but that's something where we say, you know, that's a problem we'd be so lucky to have. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not a problem, it doesn't mean it won't be a problem, but it means that if we are having that problem, the business is going to be in a good spot, and so we're going to have tools to navigate around it that we wouldn't have otherwise. Um So, so that's, that's the one side. Um, the other side, right, because I think that there are pieces where we have had to build to scale from day one to, to a really extensive level, right? I think a lot of that comes down to, to product wake. And I think where I see founders go, go wrong with this, um, the one thing that you do have to make sure scales is your product and your delivery model. And, and by that, I mean not, you know, the product in terms of number of users, but I mean kind of product use case. Right. If you're having to build, you know, new features for every customer, right? If you're doing a huge amount of custom work on top of your product and your product's not getting your customer where they need to be, that's that's the kind of thing that's actually really not scalable and is going to become insidious very, very quickly. Um, So, you know, from from day one on the product, we had to be really, really focused on this idea that uh, someone had to be able to pick this up and, you know, build a thousand models, you know, uh, you know, over the course of a month or whatever and do these things that that people simply weren't doing today um, because we knew that it was such a key Part of the product, right? And it was, uh, you know, I think where people can go wrong is there's this belief that if you solve a bunch of specific problems, eventually the problem to the 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 solution to the generic problem will appear, and it actually it doesn't work like that. You have to build the general solution first, right? Uh, and then test your general solution by building something specific. Uh, and then, you know, if the second one is easier than the first one and the third one is easier than the second one, then you're on the right path. Uh, and I think that so long as that works out, nothing else about the business really has to be scalable from day one. But that does. Well,
1: as you step out on the balcony and look across all you've built, what are you most proud of?
0: It is so awesome to wake up in the morning and know that I'm going to get to deal with some of the smartest people I have ever met, right? To know that we've got the kind of culture where, you know, if I'm out in front of the, you know, even the rest of the company, right, we're doing some presentation on something and I'm mistaken, right? They feel comfortable, like, calling me out and saying, hey, no, like, you were wrong about that. And I learn every single day I'm you know, recently one one really big shift for me, right, is uh, especially with the pandemic, there were a whole bunch of people that, you know, I didn't beat them when they interviewed. Right. For, for the longest time, as kind of the founder, I met every single person. I interviewed every single person. And I, you know, was it was kind of a final say in whether or not we hired them. And now, obviously, as we scale, that's not true anymore. And, and the first couple of times I met people that I had never interviewed, I, you know, I was super nervous. Right. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to like this person. They're not going to be Indico. And it was the exact opposite. Right. I mean, I, I loved every single one of them. And what I would just say, you know, like give this advice to, to any founders. It's like team is everything. Right. Execution is everything. Right. Your idea uh, sucks. Like, I, I don't care what your idea is. It sucks. My ideas sucked. Everyone's ideas suck. Um, execution is what matters and people are what matters. And so long as you, you execute on that, so long as you get that done, uh, everything else is going to work out. Right. But if you mess those up, you know best idea in the world, best founder in the world, right? Best investors in the world, bad team, it's not gonna work.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: Oh yeah, oh my goodness. You know, I've made so many over the years. Um, Look, I I think the biggest mistake that I made in the early years, and honestly, this is probably one of the things that brought Indicode closest to not existing anymore. was I trusted people's credentials over my own gut feeling and and over my own expertise in the space. Uh, And I think especially um, with founders that are our first time founders and they don't have a mentor network. And especially if they are successful first time founders, right? there are a lot of people out there that see that as kind of a prime opportunity, and you're gonna have a lot of people coming to you with advice, a lot of people that want to be advisors or mentors. You know, some of them want your money, some of them want your equity, some of them are really just there to help, but you don't know who is who, you don't know which is which, and uh, I, you know, I took some advice from people that I shouldn't have, right? I mean, not not exclusively, because I was getting advice from multiple places, and, and you have to do that to de-risk this kind of stuff. Um, You know, I think that the biggest issue is that um, when you're trying to build something new, there are a lot of people that don't understand what you're building and will try to tell you to build something else. And we had people doing that, and I listened to a couple of them. Uh, And, you know, we, we wasted months and maybe even years, you know, chasing down these specific kind of appified, you know, killer app sort of, consumer sort of things. And, and that was never the company that we were, right? That that was never the company that we were going to be. And Indico was never successful until I told all of those people with, you know, their, uh, and you go, again, some, of the, some people with credentials are great. It's just that that's not, you know, what I look at anymore, right? So it was people with these incredible pedigrees that I just had to turn around and say, like, look, I, I don't care what your pedigree is. Like, you don't know what's right for my business, and I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, and some of those conversations were really difficult. You know, I had to kick some advisors out of the company. It was actually, um, I, had a, uh, I had a conversation with Mark Cuban that really shone a light on it for me. Uh, I, I had the kind of pleasure to meet him at South by Southwest. He's just one of those, those good folks that really, really cares about helping young entrepreneurs. Um so we had this conversation and we traded some messages afterwards. And I still I remember this is I sent him an example of a proposal that we were sending to a customer. And he said, like, wow, you know, like this looks like sh- this looks terrible. Um, you know, you absolutely need to change this. And I realized that it was the first concrete piece of feedback I had gotten on my company. I had gotten on my company in impulse. And, you know, I had to go through and I had to figure out, okay, who's adding value? Who isn't? You know, where did we make these mistakes? And, you know, it was one of the reasons that eventually we did bring in the CEO, uh, Tom. You know, I was the CEO to that point. I shifted over to CTO. And again, all of those shifts that were things that I had felt from day one, that's actually what was holding Indico back, that I wasn't following my gut. And I was listening too much to, I mean, frankly, you know, if people knew how to build a company, they would build a company right like you know more than they do that's why you are where you are and it's on you to figure out where their advice can be followed and where it can't and just remember that in so many ways you are the expert for your business and and don't forget that
1: well tell me what the future looks like for your product and for your team
0: so we've got a lot of really really exciting things on our roadmap our our massive vision for the future right is when you look at unstructured content and when you look at documents and when you look at ml in general you know what indico is fundamentally building is a better way for humans and ml to interact right it it is a new kind of supervision you know sometimes we call it machine teaching instead of machine learning it's this idea that you know yes we do have cutting-edge technology absolutely state-of-the-art right but the goal is to make it accessible um and i think that not a lot of people are focused on that problem right now. And I think that when we look at the ripples of it, yes, you know, intelligent process automation and intelligent automation broadly, that is an awesome place for us to be. And, you know, we're doing really, really well in that market. But I think what people don't realize is that this unlocking of unstructured content is even bigger than just automation. Automation is kind of the the tip of the spear here. Uh, and so going out to this notion of, you know, unstructured analytics and unstructured applications, you think, you know, as a programmer, if you've ever dealt with PDF documents, right? It's this massive nightmare and IndiCo in a lot of ways is answering the question of, you know, how do we make that accessible? How do we unlock that unstructured data and make it productive for people? Uh, and again, automation is the first part of that, but unstructured data is a much bigger problem than just automation.
1: We'll switch to you, Slater. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, architect, really really any person. Name a person you look up to and why.
0: I'd say one person I really look up to is uh, one of my co-founders, Madison, for sure. Um, I don't know if that's a, that's a corny answer, but, you know, Madison's a really, really sharp guy and he keeps me honest uh, and I keep him honest and we butt heads, but it's a lot of fun, right? Uh, maybe butt heads is even too severe, right? We've got strongly different opinions on on certain pieces and we've got different philosophies and we just have a a great relationship that really helps us turn that into really productive friction and we, we get to, you know, a better solution because both of us are there. And he's just got a really, really incredible selfless demeanor to him. Right. And I think that in so many ways, kind of the ideal of leadership is this servant leadership uh, mentality. And, you know, he's been an example for me over the years. Right. And I'm very, very happy to say that, you know, I, I follow in his footsteps. I mean, Diane also, like my other co-founder, I mean, she, she's incredible. I mean, you talk about the shift to remote and how difficult that is for companies. And she's our she's our head of HR. And I, I, I actually I credit her 100 percent. She we, we more than doubled our headcount you know, during the pandemic. Most of us have never met each other in person. And somehow our culture has gotten stronger over time. And I credit her with that, you know, 100%. And it's something that I, I just would not know how to do that. Uh, it's incredibly impressive.
1: Well, we talked about mistakes, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? The
0: most important thing is that reminder that the only thing stopping you from doing something is yourself? Um, I, you know, the most impactful moment for me as as an early entrepreneur, um, I met uh, Katie Ray, and she was the the old head of TechStars Boston. She came she came to my school. I didn't exactly know who she was. I just knew that she was a bigwig. You know, I like tracked her down at lunch. Uh, you know. Was probably a little aggressive, but you know, she she was very very nice and patient. And you know, I sat her down. I gave her this like ten minute like rambling long pitch about some you know biomedical nonsense. And I remember she turns to me and she says, "Great idea, why aren't you doing it?" And I didn't have an answer. And, and you know, that was that was the question that ultimately led me to found Indico. And I think that you know, again, to, to kind of the earlier points, right? You know, embrace the power of yourself as an individual. You know, the thing that got me into this space in the first place is the fact that you can pick up this, this two-pound piece of metal and you can build an empire with nothing but your mind and your fingertips, right? And that's that's incredible. That's never been possible before in, in the history of humanity. And I think that it's easy to forget that you can build anything, right? Like, it's all at your fingertips. Uh, and, and don't don't feel... And realize that the only person that's holding you from doing something is you
1: last we'll question slater you're, you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing they're jazzed about it they can't wait to show it off to the world they can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane what advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit
0: i think what, what i would tell them is that um it's really hard uh and no one tells you just how hard it is um I think that you know someone. Someone uh, said recently, you know, oh yeah, you know, dropping out of college and, and founding a startup, right? That's that's the American dream, and it's like I just had to laugh at that, right? Because it's not that he's wrong, right? I th- I think people really, really do um, they aggrandize it, right? They make it seem really, really glorious and glamorous. Uh, like if you're if you're here to make money, you're you're not going to succeed. Um, it's it's really hard making a company is one of the hardest things you can possibly do, and. One of the most important things and one one of the biggest things that that differentiates people that are are successful from people who aren't is just their ability to pick themselves back up and, and try again and i and i truly think that if if anyone knew what they were getting themselves into the first time around no one would become an entrepreneur and every every single founder i've talked to agrees with me on this is that it is so much harder than anything you can imagine uh and, and you can't imagine it especially when things are going really well but I don't care how good your business is, you know, things aren't always going to be going really well. Yeah. And, and I guess just make sure you've got people there to help you when when things are going sideways because it's going to happen.
1: That's great advice. Well, Slater, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Indico. It
0: was a total pleasure, Noah. You know, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story.